someday when I get to heaven, there are two things I'm going to do. I'm going to be able to sing without a new voice, right? And I'm going to sing, Be Thou My Vision to the Lord. And uh, it'll be good. Uh, I, uh, I love that. Oh, the second thing I'm going to do is play the flute and play Be Thou My Vision on the flute. So I have that to look forward to. We are continuing in Genesis chapter 3. We're looking at uh, in a moment. Uh, a couple things that just hit our minds in here. You know, we started this fall with a series of where did that come from out of Genesis. And we've gone through several things. We I think had certainly been interesting to me. I hope they were interesting to you. Of where did sin come from, for instance? Uh, that I, that was a, a good study for me. And this morning we're in the one that I've kind of been looking forward to. Where did fear come from? You know, there was a time on earth where there was no fear. Mankind lived in harmony with God, and there was no reason to be afraid. They wouldn't have known how to define the word fear when you've never seen something. You don't know how to define it. So there, there was a time in man's history where there was absolutely no fear in their life. Wouldn't that be good? Because there was nothing to be afraid of. If you look at Genesis 3, we're going to read it in just a second, but just the scene that we have here is a scene of perfect harmony. Uh, God is walking with man. I, I can't exactly that scene when Adam and Eve were in the garden, this wonderful, beautiful place that God had made for them. And then in the cool of the day, it says that the Lord came to walk with them. And it, it appears as we read through this that this was a custom that they've done it. We do not know how long Adam and Eve lived in the garden before the catastrophe, before they transgressed, before they sinned. We don't know. It could have been uh, a day or two. It could have been a few years. It could have been 50 years. I don't know how long it was. And I don't believe there's any hints at all as to how long they were there. But they were there long enough, I believe, that to have a custom where in the cool of the night, the afternoon, after the sun starts to go down, the Lord would come, and they would walk together. And... What an idyllic scene. Hard for us to even picture just walking through this lovely garden with the Lord. Vernon and I had a great vacation last week. We went to New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is a beautiful city. Uh, I would love to have shown you some pictures of New Hampshire, but I, I won't take the time to do that. But we, uh, a couple of times, one walk in particular, we walked up a trail. Uh, it was, I think, altogether about four and a half miles, but it was up and down, nice wide uh, level trail, but uh, a lot of incline and decline. And as we walked along, we'd be looking at all of these sites, just extraordinary trees and rock formations, and just marveled at what God has done. It's indescribable that that beauty that was around us. Then we would sit on the bench for a few minutes. And as we got closer and closer to the end of that walk, we sat on the bench a little more. Uh, 
lot of walking. And as we sit there, especially before we start talking about how we were, we would talk about what we were seeing, and we just kind of revel in the beauty of God's creation, enjoy one another, and enjoy what God had done. You know, in a little glimpse, I think that's what they had. They were in this beautiful habitat, and they were accustomed to walking Just with keep the Lord. Now, if he starts talking louder, usually he don't. For a little side if he here. does start talking louder, the then all you see is no red. man has seen God in the eyes of God's audio. Yeah, and then they you turn that mic down. And yet, it says that God came into the garden to walk with Adam and Eve. Now, how could that be? While I can't prove this, I think I could build an argument for it. It was Christ who came. And it was Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, who has always been the Son of God, and from eternity past, very God, very man, as took on flesh. But I believe it's always been Jesus, called it Christophany, when you see the pictures of God walking with his people. You see in chapter 17, that, that God spoke directly, one-to-one, -one with Abraham. You see it later, I think it's in 26, where you see God talking, man-to-man, -man, talking directly with Isaac. And I think all of these are Christophanies. I think they're all appearances of Christ on earth before he came to earth as a man. We read it in the Gospels. You can argue that with me if you like. That's my two cents worth. But I, I think there's evidence for that being. But as we read in just a second, uh, three, uh, chapter 3, Genesis 7 through 13, look at the scene before us. It says, 3 7, and their eyes were both open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin cloths. Obviously, they've just sinned, they've just disobeyed the Lord. They just violated everything that he told them. He gave them everything they needed except for one little prohibition, and they had to have that. So <coughs> their life has changed. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the Lord God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to them, and he called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? Uh, sorry, back to verse uh, 11. Uh, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave the fruit to me, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Pray. Father, once again we come before you asking you to help us. Staggering the scene before us, the, the harmony, the 
duty to be walking with your people and then the change Lord, the change that's much like the world we live in where fear increased rather than harmony people found themselves at odds with you and they could no longer seek you out rather they hid from you Lord help us to see this and help us to see ourselves in this passage and also help us to see you in grace as we read it We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. We see the first mention of fear in Scripture, but I think we see the first picture of grace and mercy in Scripture. I don't think you see it before this. You see God's power, you see his majesty, you see his creativity, you see a lot about God, you see his eternality before this, but here we find the grace of God and the mercy of God illustrated these verses. You know, Jesus is walking with his people and everything is good. Then it says they ate and their eyes were open, which for the first time they know wrong. And isn't it interesting that at the end of chapter 2, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Now we come to the, this time after they transgressed. And they're the same, but something happened. Something happened in their heart, something happened in their will, something happened in their mind, and the relationship has changed. Now, do you see that? I don't know everything that happened. I just know now they're guilty, where they weren't before. I know now they have shame that they didn't have before. So, man has changed. His relationship with God has changed. And... Look through this passage with me at the things that man did to correct the fear that he was feeling. Uh, because I think we find ourselves in these things. Look what he did. Verse 7. It says that, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, that he uh, hid. They were naked. They sewed fig leaves together first. That's the first thing. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin clothes. Now, you know, I actually looked it up to see if clothing is made from fig leaves today. My mind is not And while I couldn't find any clothing made of fig leaves, I did find clothing that's made of plant fibers, where they actually weave it. And you, ladies, you may know a lot more about this than I do, but they do make clothing out of plant fibers today. Well, they didn't have plant fibers or they built it. So they found the biggest thing they could find and they sewed it together. They did the best they could do to cover themselves. So the first thing that mankind did, instead of what what could mankind have done at that point? What could he have done? She have done. When the Lord came calling, could they have said, Oh Lord, we've done wrong? Come to him immediately. Couldn't they have done that? No, the first thing they do is try to make this garment to real quick cover themselves up and to hide from God through this garment. That's number one. Then the second thing is in, in right after that, verse 8. They heard the Lord walking and they hid themselves. So they try to make this garment and then they go off and try to hide themselves. Maybe behind one of those big trees. I don't know where they but they wanted to be away from the presence of God. Instead of the harmony that they had known, they now want to be away from 
give themselves. Then notice the third thing that they did in verse 10. When, when the Lord comes seeking, they say, I heard you, and I was afraid because I was naked. And I can imagine, while it doesn't say this, but I can imagine that when God came in the cool of the evening before the fall, that they would have run to him, wouldn't they? If God came walking through here, how many of us would run to him? I would. I'd want to get right next to him. I'd want to ask him a million questions. I'd want to worship him. But this was their friend. This was their creator. And I would think they'd have run to him. They'd have heard him coming, and they'd have come to him. But now, you know, something has changed. And instead of coming to him, now they run from him, and they hide themselves. And then look at the next thing they did about their fear. Verse 12. The Lord has said, uh, what did you, you do? Did he need to ask that question? God needs to say, what in the world have you done? No, I think he did. There's a reason for that, too. We'll come to it. But the Lord comes, and then uh, he asks them, what, what have you done? Have you eaten of the tree? Verse 11. And man said, that woman you gave me, she told me to eat. Or she gave it to me, and I ate. But what's the first thing that happens here? Instead of taking the responsibility, they shift the blame to another. Now, you young ones that are here, and older ones too, but you would never do that to a sibling, would you? Now, you'd never do that to anybody. And Josh, you would never do that to shift the blame. None of us would ever do that to shift the blame to somebody else. But that was the first thing that he thought, is that it's not my fault. You gave me the woman. So what ultimately was he placing the blame? He's placing it back on God. See, God, this is your fault. You just left me alone there and not giving me that woman. I'd be okay. Well, obviously that's not the case. But that was his ploy. And then he says to the woman, he dresses her. He says, what have you done? And she said, that serpent that beautiful creature that you made, he said it was good, so I ate it. So the, the, the four things that they did were all to no avail. They tried to cover themselves. It didn't work. Uh, they hide from the Creator. It doesn't work. They went from running to God to running from God, and it doesn't work. And then they shift the blame to another. Man's fearful. Because he knows in his heart of hearts that it's transgressed. He knows that he has broken God's instructions, commandment, his, his uh, simple word that he gave him. Just don't eat of that. And he knows that he's done it. He's violated his own conscience and he's done wrong. So the relationship changed and man knew fear and he couldn't fix it. Man still knew fear. At the end of all of that uh, effort, man still is afraid. So then it falls into God's domain to fix it. So what was it that God did? What was his solution to man's fear? We see it in the same passage. Look at verse 9. The first thing the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Knowing full well what man has done, 
Knowing full well that they disobeyed him, the Lord comes up and he calls him out. That sounded all familiar to you. Isn't that the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the Lord in our transgression, knowing that we are relationship with him is separate, he still comes calling us. You ever had that experience in your life? We just sense God's calling. God is speaking to you today. That through the word of God, through another Christian, through looking at his creation, you just know that God is calling out to you. So God sought them. He didn't leave them in the plight they were in. The second thing in verse 11, he said, Who told you were naked? He confronts them. How many of you would say confrontation is a pleasant thing? I hate confrontation. I'll avoid confrontation at almost at any cost. I don't like confrontation. I live my life that way sometimes to my demise. I, I just don't like confrontation. And yet God comes down and he's not leaving them in the plight that they're in. He comes seeking them, and the next thing he does is he confronts them with what they've done. It's kind of eyeball to eyeball. And if you can imagine that, looking in the eyes of God, and him saying, what have you done? So the second thing that God did was to confront them. And then later, we'd have to go to verse 20 for this, uh, but skip over to verse 20 for just a second. And the Lord uh, is addressing them. He tells that he's going to call uh, the white bee. She's the mother of the living. And then in verse 21, he says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. I believe this is the first picture of the gospel. Yeah. Because if, if you take a garment of skin... Where does it come from? Come from an animal, right? And what does the animal give up in order to give you their garment of skin? They give the bite. And so, you know, someone has said that the whole Old Testament, and I believe they're right, the whole Old Testament is a cry, a plea, for where is the land that takes away the sin of the world? Where is he? And the whole New Testament, from the words of John the Baptist, is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the Lord takes an animal, an innocent, a sheep, perhaps, and out of the skin, he makes a garment for mankind. So the Lord is the one who seeks man out. The Lord is the one who confronts man where he is. And the Lord is the one who prepares uh, a garment so that now the sinner can be him again, covered, clothed. Yes. The spiritual pictures, I think, are vision. I think that we can see them and read. You can see what the Lord is telling us today through this. Mankind still trying to cover up his sin. Not always we do that. Sometimes we just redefine sin. We say that's just human nature. No, it's not human nature, it's sin. 
Yeah, it may be part of human nature, but we have to see it for what it is. All kinds of ways. Sometimes we try to cover up sin by good works. You know, people will spend a lifetime investing and say, God, can't you see all the things that I've done? But never come to know the Lamb of God. It takes away the sight of the It's to no avail. They still find himself in the guilty. Are, are men still trying to hide they, There's all kinds of ways you hide from God, too. One of the ways that you hide is by saying he doesn't exist. By just saying, there is no God. Uh, we know the psalmist tells us that the fool has said in his heart there is no God. God has built an awareness of himself into the conscience of every man. And it takes a concerted effort to dispel that. It takes a lifetime to dispel that. So we hide from God in all kinds of ways. And that doesn't work either. Uh, Psalm 139 says, Lord, you know when I sit down, you know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where can I flee from your presence? If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, even the darkness is not dark to you. David knew that uh, there was no way to hide from God. Where can I flee from your presence? Now, at one point, the disciples are starting to fade in John chapter 6. And many of them are leaving Christ, going their own way, own way because they begin to get the sense that this may be hard. And Messiah, while he's powerful and he's good, he's all these things, he isn't going to straighten everything out in this fight, and he's not going to overthrow the Roman Empire. So we're still going to have a hardship. And not only that, now we're going to carry his name, and I just don't think I want to do this. So the, a lot of the disciples that had followed him for a time began to leave. And then Jesus turned, I believe, to the twelve. And uh, Peter speaks for the twelve, and he speaks for me too. You remember the passage at the end of John chapter 6? The Lord says, and I can just see his heart in this, what about you? What about you? Are you going to go away too? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? I'm going to insert a word here because I think it's justified. You have the words of eternal life. But I think he's saying you only have the words of eternal life. Lord, the whom can we go? We have no place to hide. Because the Lord only has the words of eternal life. Isn't that still true today? Where can we hide from him? Why would we want to hide from him? Because he only has the words of eternal life. You know, people have tried to hide from God by making ridicule of him. There was a Woody Allen, well, Woody Allen was a Jew, of all people. You think he knows something about God, but he was a humorist, and he is, I guess. But one time he said, and, and you can see how this would affect people's psyche. He said, not only is there no God, but you got to try getting a plumber on the weekend. And, and Woody Allen can be a funny man, but that is a funny. I don't see anything funny in that. What he was saying is God doesn't exist. And maybe plumbers on the weekend knows his teeth, I don't know. But uh, he's saying he doesn't exist. 
You know, in their earlier life, Madeline Burnett Hare was a was a violently uh, opposed. She was violently opposed to the person of God. She absolutely had no regard for God. She made some bumper stickers, and I read this as a truth. I believe that she did. Uh, one of them was Jesus Christ Superfly. That an offense to you? Yes, it should be. But what was she doing? She was trying to do her ridicule, not only to get rid of her own understanding of the reality of God, but to get rid of it for anybody else that would read. On another one, she said, uh, God, just another addiction. In her ridicule, she, she's trying to dismiss God from her thoughts. And I believe that late in Madeline Hare's life that she changed her heart towards God. I don't know that story very well, and I couldn't find it, but I believe she did. Why? Because the hound of heaven kept pursuing her. You know that term, hound of heaven? Uh, there's a poem written, I believe, in the 1500s. And it was called The Hound of Heaven. And I, this year, this week, I was intrigued by it, so I saw it. I watched it dramatized, and I listened to it a couple times. And it is an absolutely amazing poem. Listen, Google it. All of you have computers. Google it and look up The Hound of Heaven. And take five minutes and listen to it. Let me tell you the story very quickly. It's the man who wrote it, his name has slipped my mind right this second. He lived in the late 15, early 1600s. And he had been trained to be a doctor. He went to college. His parents were people of substance. And he went to college. He was trained to be a doctor. But he decided he wanted to be a writer, I believe. So he, he moved to London. And then within a short time, he got addicted to opium. And his life went downhill. And he was living in the streets and just had a horrible life and was sick. And one day he picked up paper and pencil. I don't know where he got it. But he began to write and he wrote out a poem called The Hound of Heaven. And the sentiment of that poem is this. God, I have tried the high term. God, I've tried to pretend that you do not exist, and yet you kept coming. And it's as though I can hear your footsteps. You just keep coming. You keep coming. You keep coming. Listen, folks, the hound of heaven never gives up. He just keeps coming. You ever watch a hound out of the woods? Isn't it amazing how they can find that scent from nothing? And, and seek out whatever the prey is. Well, the hound of heaven is seeking us out. He's still seeking mankind. And we can try to hide, but it's not going to work. And then I think one of the worst cases of the denial of God, the denial of grace, is when we become a victim. And, and that's what happened to Adam and to Eve in the garden. Adam said, I. <laughs> God, you gave me this woman, and it's your fault. Not my fault. He was a victim, right? And the woman says, wait a minute, that, that creature, you made him, and that creature, that beautiful creature, he tempted me. It's not my fault. And so they, they try to move the blame to someone else to become a victim before God. 
And I think there's a lot of people that do that today. God, I'm a victim. My life hasn't been what I thought it should be. My life's been hard. I've had difficulty. And you haven't given me everything I wanted. You've made me a victim in life. And the Lord says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm still seeking you. And I'm still providing the garment of righteousness for you. And you're going to forgive me. You know, Adam could have been in a terrible plight there. God could have said to Adam, Go to not to eat, they ate, your life is over. And could he have done that righteously? Of course, he said, In the day you eat, you will die. And he could have righteously executed capital punishment at that moment. But grace enters, and he doesn't. Not only does he not follow through, Adam died. His relationship with God was severed, so he died spiritually. But he doesn't follow through and take his life, but he makes a way that Adam can live, and that Adam can live in God's presence by clothing him. You know, the forbidden fruit was probably good to eat. It probably was. It may have tasted as good as anything in the garden. And when they ate it, there's no appearance that it was bitter, right? There's no appearance that it was unpleasant in any way. They probably said, yum, yum, this is really good stuff. And when we transgress the Lord, and when we do those things which are forbidden for us, sometimes they are really pleasant, aren't they? And sometimes they feel good. I like this. This is good stuff. But in the aftermath of that, we have what Adam had. We have that sense of guilt. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? We have that sense of guilt. We have that sense that our relationship with God is fractured. That, that we're in trouble. And aren't you thankful this morning that God doesn't leave us there? That just like in the garden, God comes calling and saying, Where are you? Where are you? And then he comes up to us and confronts us. Oh, we don't see him. Not a Christophany, but we hear him. And we can hear him through his word, but we can also hear him through his spirit. And he's saying, What have you done? What have you done? And he says, I can fix this. I can fix it because Jesus died for your sin. I can fix this because I took your sin. And you don't have to feel it anymore. The last enemy has been conquered. Death has been conquered. Jesus won that battle. It's all over, folks. David said, I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight. And that's what we need to say. Lord, we understand we've done wrong. We've done evil, and it's against you. We may have hurt somebody else, but it is first and foremost against you that we've sinned. 
Then he goes on and says, Lord, blot out my transgressions. Lord, help me with my sin. And God does. You know, some really good news out of this. The really good news is that even in the garden, the Lord made that garment of righteousness to cover you. And today, we can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ as our own. No more reason for fear. Yes, it's all about you. When I was a kid, uh, yes, I was a kid once. Uh, I was probably eight or nine years old. I don't think I was 18 or 19 when this happened. But I, my mom and dad would rarely go out at night. And occasionally they do something after dark. And I, as a young person, always went to bed early. I was outside doing things all day, and when 8 or 9 o'clock came around, I had to be in bed. I was tired. So, if, as, if they went out, they'd usually say, just stay. My parents never had locks on their doors. We never had a lock on our door all the time I was growing up. And so they'd go out and say, Bill, stay here, and whatever, just go to bed. We'll be back. And I knew they would. But you know what I would do when they left? I'd go upstairs where my bedroom was, and the first thing I'd do is look in the closet. Because you never know what's in that closet. <laughs> and then the second thing I would do is look under my bed. Am I the only one? And I would look under the bed, and I'd make sure that there wasn't some kind of something under that bed. And I don't know what I've done. But then the third thing I would do is get bed and cover my head up. Because the monster in the closet can't find me. No. So I, I, I was fearful. And I, I was afraid. But it's, it's interesting that when Dad was home, I never experienced that. I never once checked when Dad was home. Because my dad loved me and Dad wasn't letting anything bad happen to me. And things were okay when Dad was home. Even when my big brother was home, it was okay. But even though he pretended he didn't like me, that he was protected. And so, if dad was home, I was okay. Folks, dad's home. And we're okay. Because you don't have to look up. You don't have to look at the clock. He already knows what's there. Have you seen that commercial? I wish I could remember what it's for. Where the guy goes to bed and this, this creature crawls out from under his bed. What is it? Poltergeist? The, well, there's a commercial. There's a commercial like this. Anybody ever seen it? Okay, I, I can't remember. I think it's technology. But it, it's really cute. The, he crawls out under the bed, and here's this friendly monster, really ugly, but he doesn't seem to be meaning to do any harm. And uh, they have this conversation. Well, there is no monster under the bed with that one. And Dad is always home. We have an eternal omniscient guy. He's always home. Big brother is too, right? Yeah. <laughs> and big brother. They're always home. Never leaving. So, this morning, I think what the God would say to us through this, the first thing is that he's seeking us. God's still seeking mankind. It's not us searching for him. It's him seeking us, searching for us. I think he's searching everybody here this morning. And I think he's asking the question of everyone here this morning, where are you? Where are you? 
hiding? How are we hiding from that? Where are you? And then the third thing he wants us to know that he has prepared for the righteousness. But I can have his righteousness instead of mine, which is not. I have none. But I have the righteousness of Christ this morning. And not only that, we can go to bed and lay our head down and know that no matter what comes, whatever befalls us, Jesus does all things well within us. Whatever comes, that the Lord has control of it, he's under his command. That doesn't mean that it's always going to be easy. That doesn't mean you aren't going to have hardship. That would be untrue. And I'm not representing it in that way. What it does mean is that it's all under his care. And he's a good father. It's all under his care this morning. Lord, I thank you for what's before us. I thank you, Lord, that uh, both when Adam and Eve went to hide and when we go to hide, that you continue to call, you continue to call out to us. You say, where are you? And then, Lord, you confront us right where we are. That's Christ. I see that as mercy. Jesus did. That we that Christ died for our sins. That transgression committed in the garden and that transgression committed by us is all covered when Jesus died for our sins. So, Lord, you make us a pillar of righteousness through our Savior. Lord, I don't know every person's part here this morning, but I do know this. That you're calling out to each one of us. Lord, I pray that everybody here will hear your voice this morning. And you call out, where are you? That everybody here would sense the confrontation as they look by faith's eyes into your eyes. Lord, I also so thank that what we find when we look into your eyes is grace. We find a loving God. We find someone who cares for our soul. Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for the garment of righteousness that's ours through Jesus Christ. Lord, do your good work in all of our hearts this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. Passing down to 1 John chapter 4 says this. We've come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God. By this is love perfected in us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. You hear that? This is what the love of God can do in our hearts, that we can have confidence in the day of judgment. Why? Because Christ has taken our sins. And he goes on to say, because as he is, so are we also in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, 
And whoever fears is not in perfection in love. And we love him because he is.